Hi everyone, thank you so much for joining us for episode 39 of Infraction, our true crime podcast. I'm Nadia. And I'm Sally. And we know that we have a lot of new listeners and actually some of our regular listeners have also commented on Instagram asking us uh, to tell you guys a little bit more about ourselves. So we thought that we would just start this episode with a short introduction, I guess, about who we are. Uh, So yeah, I'm Nadia and I'm a trainee solicitor. And Sally, do you want to tell everyone what you do? Uh, Yeah, so I've got a degree in psychology. Um, I'm currently in the wonderful world of IT sales, but for (laughs) now, I'm taking bold steps out of that. um, And I'm currently interviewing for something more psychology, sociology related. So stay tuned to find out what I end up doing. But yeah. Yeah, so I know a lot of you are really interested in Sally's background because she says some very intelligent things over on this podcast. Uh, so yeah, her her background is psychological and mine's legal. Um, we hope that that goes hand in hand quite nicely for this kind of podcast setup. And yeah, we met in school. We kind of worked out, I think, the other day. Did we think we've been friends for maybe like 15? No, maybe like 10 years? <laughs> God, can't even remember. Yeah, nine. So yeah. yeah. However long time. Old we were then. <laughs> yeah, too long, too long. Um, so yeah, we decided to start this podcast um, back when the first lockdown happened. Now we're in our third lockdown, we're still going. So um, yeah, we hope you guys really enjoy these podcasts. And um, yeah, should we crack on? Yeah, just one more thing to say, and this isn't like a shout out, it's just a genuine thing. If you do want to know more about us or listen to us chat more aimlessly, um, obviously we do have more casual chat and more in-depth talks about uh, our friendship, etc. over on Patreon, if anyone is interested. Yeah, we show, uh, I think someone asked us why we don't show more of our personality on this podcast, and it's because we share it mainly on the wind downs on Patreon. (laughs) 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 All right, let's crack on then. So... Just as we left 2020 with a case from our dear old England, we are starting 2021 with another one. Today's case is set in Cumbria, and seeing as you proclaimed on our last episode, Sal, that you know everything, do you know where Cumbria is? (laughs) Yep. Where is it? (laughs) Up above us, northerly, (laughs) northerly direction. Yes, yes, correct. So Cumbria is situated in the northwest of England. Uh, It's very well known for being the home to the Lake District. It's very, very beautiful. It's a somewhat rural area. It has miles of countryside and rolling hills and lakes. um, And there are a lot of smaller communities within Cumbria. Today's episode starts in 2010 in Whitehaven, a large coastal town in West Cumbria. And the man at the centre of today's case, Derek Bird, worked in Whitehaven as a taxi driver. This was a job that Derek didn't enjoy, it had very low pay and it wasn't the career he had expected for himself. Derek had previously worked at Sellafield Nuclear Power Plant as a joiner, however he'd been suspended in the 1990s following allegations that he had been stealing wood from the plant. After a police investigation, evidence came to light that proved that these allegations were true and that Derek had been stealing wood from the Sellafield plant. As a result of this, he was convicted of theft and received a 12-month suspended sentence. So he must have been stealing quite a lot of wood. Yeah, yeah. It d- does seem like he was. I think he was selling it on. Oh, uh, okay. So due to this conviction on his record, he couldn't get another job as a joiner anywhere else, and therefore he took on the role as a taxi driver in Whitehaven. 52-year-old Derek Bird worked in Whitehaven, but he lived in a small village called Rowra. There is an incredibly small, close-knit community in Rowra, and after his suspension from work, and then subsequent criminal conviction, Derek began to feel the piercing eyes of the community on him. Everyone in his community knew what he'd done, and it began to make Derek feel quite anxious. 
he soon became convinced that people were constantly talking about him. As a result of this paranoia, his wife, with whom he'd fathered two sons, left him in the mid-90s. She moved away and took their sons with her, and this added to Derek's paranoia. He was convinced people were talking about how much of a failure he was, losing his job and then losing his family. Mm. He told everyone he knew that the divorce was amicable, but reports appeared to suggest that it wasn't quite the mutual breakup Derek was claiming. Over the next decade, Derek went to work and came home to his empty house and then drank himself into oblivion, especially on the weekends. Derek regularly chastised himself for being a failure, especially when he learnt that his twin brother David was doing incredibly well at his job. David and Derek have been described by family members as being chalk and cheese. The twin brothers were never alike growing up, and Derek despised his brother for always being more successful than him. However, despite his enormous amount of self-pity, Derek's life wasn't quite as bad as he thought it was. As a hobby, he did scuba diving, a fairly solitary sport, but out of the water he was friends with the other divers and often went for drinks with them. He also enjoyed hunting and owned several powerful shotguns and hunting rifles. He usually hunted with his father and his brothers, a sport that the men in his family had bonded over when his parents had divorced when Derek had been just a child. Although Derek felt that living in a close community was a bad thing because he felt everyone was talking about him, in actual fact it was a good thing as it meant that everyone looked out for everyone else. Within this small community, Derek had a lot of friends and acquaintances. His friends described him as, quote, a nice man, a bit shy, but nice, and they all used the nickname Birdie for him. Another described him as being friendly and even-tempered, and, quote, the kind of neighbour with a ready smile who would stop for a chat. The cashier at the village post office described him as good old Birdie, the man who paid one pound for his 85 pence carton of milk and would never take his change. Mm. The other drivers at the taxi rank even went as far as to describe Derek as, quote, very placid, which is why the entire country was shocked by what Derek Bird did next. Oh. What? Did you think he was the victim? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> no. So, mm. on June 2nd, 2010, at 2.30 in the morning, Derek Bird drove to Lamplu, a small scattered community in West Cumbria, which has a population of less than a thousand people. Derek's twin brother David lived in Lamplu with his wife and children, however, on this night, his wife and children were not at the house. In Lamplu, Derek B lined for the house his brother lived in. He pulled into the driveway and let himself into David's home. He walked up the stairs, stood outside David's bedroom door, and then he fired ten shots from his hunting rifle through the closed bedroom door. Oh. He then opened the door and looked down at his brother who was struggling to breathe, Derek then raised his rifle one last time and put it up to David's face, a face that looked so much like his own. Then he pulled the trigger. By me. In total, David Bird suffered at least 11 different shots, although the ME stated that there were 15 different entry and exit wounds on his body. Nobody reported hearing gunshots to the police, and therefore David's body was not found immediately. Around three hours later, at 5.14am, Derek Bird's car was picked up on CCTV footage in Frisington, a village less than five miles away from Lamplu where he'd just been. This CCTV footage showed Derek driving down a single track road to a farmhouse owned by a man named Kevin Commons, a local solicitor who was 60 years old. Derek Bird had been in contact with Kevin Commons regarding some issues he'd been having with the HMRC. Derek had been tax evading by not declaring any payments from customers made in cash and he'd been hiding that money in his home. 
Over the 20 odd years that Derek had been a taxi driver, he'd accumulated over £60,000 that hadn't been declared to the tax man. Oh my God, that's insane. I know, it's so much money, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so basically, Derek had become paranoid when he'd received a letter from the HMRC um, and he thought that he was being investigated and he'd instructed Kevin Commons as his solicitor to get him out of the mess that he'd created for himself. For almost four hours on that morning on June 2nd, Derek lay in wait on Kevin's driveway, waiting for him to leave his house. As Kevin left his house in his suit, holding his briefcase ready for the day ahead of him at work, he looked up to see Derek Bird's car blocking his driveway. Kevin started walking up the driveway towards the car, but Derek wasn't in it. Instead, he was hiding behind in the shadows behind the farmhouse. He emerged from his hiding place and walked up behind Kevin and shot him. What? This first shot hit Kevin in the shoulder and caused him to stagger backwards. The sound of the shot alerted Kevin's neighbour and she said that she looked out of the window to see Kevin being pursued by a man with a gun. She ran back from the window and called the police. When the police arrived at Kevin's home, they found him lying dead on his driveway, having been fatally shot in the head, and his murderer was nowhere to be seen. This just seems really strange, because I assumed that the reason he would be going to his lawyers would be to confess what he'd done to his brother... Mm. But no. And then also, having already, I mean, got away is obviously a stretch because it's only been a few hours. But, I mean, it's quite amazing he's fired 10 shots in his brother's house and not been caught. And Mm. at that point, you'd kind of think, like, he'd run. But to then go, and in much broader daylight, go Mm. and kill his lawyer. And as we already have heard, like, with a witness, just seems incredibly strange behaviour. Mm-hmm. It's going to get so much stranger, let me tell you. Because at 10.30am, Derek's car pulled onto the Whitehaven High Street. He drove up to the taxi rank that he worked at and pulled up beside one of his co-workers, a taxi driver named Darren Rucastle. Derek rolled down his window and called out to Darren to come to his car. As Darren walked over to the car, Derek stuck his rifle out the window and shot Darren in the face, neck and stomach. Darren died almost instantly on the ground, surrounded by members of the community just out and about doing a bit of shopping. Jesus Christ. Three minutes later, at 10.33am, a second phone call was made to the police about a man shooting people in Whitehaven. At this stage, the police didn't know who or what they were dealing with. All they knew was that they had two men dead, one on his driveway and the other in Whitehaven town centre. At approximately 11am, the police received a third phone call. This was from a man named Ron Patterson. He said that he had gone round to his neighbour's house and had found the man laying semi-naked on the floor, surrounded by blood. And this man was, of course, David Bird. The police, now convinced that this was one individual on a killing spree, deployed all the armed police in Cumbria to the Whitehaven area. Unfortunately, there were no armed officers local to the area, and so the response time was to be at least an hour whilst officers travelled from all over Cumbria to get to the area where the shootings were happening. What made things even harder was that the shooter was constantly on the move. Derek Bird, still in his taxi with his two guns on his passenger seat, drove away from the scene where he had killed Darren Rue Castle and moved further down the high street. There, he saw Don Reed and Paul Wilson, two other taxi drivers. He called them over to his car and then shot them both. So presumably these taxi drivers were all known to him in over and above the fact they were like taxi drivers... Does that make sense? Like, he was he mates with them? Mm-hmm. Or were they just happened to be taxi drivers there at the time? Oh, I see what you're saying. No, no, no. Yeah, they're all co-workers. They all work with each other. They all see each other when they're sort of down at the taxi rank. Um, mm-hmm. 
they all get out their taxis and speak to each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he fully well knows who these individuals are who is calling over to his car at this point. God. So, um, yeah, he called over Don Reed and Paul Wilson. So Paul Wilson was shot in the face. He said that he thought that he had been a prank until he put his hand up to his face and felt the blood. Don Reed, having seen his friend just getting shot in the face by one of their work colleagues, dived to the ground just as Derek raised the gun and shot him. As a result, Don was shot in the back. Don started crawling away from the car just as Derek got out of his vehicle. Derek raised his weapon and Don stopped moving. Derek then lowered his weapon, got back in his car and drove away. Both Paul Wilson and Don Reed survived being shot, but both suffered life-changing injuries. By this time, the police were convinced that they had a spree killer on the loose and they put out media alerts urging everyone to lock themselves indoors. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So just as an alert was going out over the police radio that there was a man driving around shooting people, a neighbourhood officer spotted a grey taxi with a shotgun pointing out the window. This officer called it in and immediately started following the taxi. Not realising that there was a police car in pursuit, Derek started driving out of the Whitehaven area when he spotted the taxi of Terry Kennedy driving towards him on the opposite side of the road. Terry was a close friend of Derek's, the pair drank with each other in the local pub most weeks. Derek flashed his lights at Terry to stop his car, and Terry did, slowing to a halt so that his driver's window was next to Derek's driver's window. Derek wound down his window and stuck his shotgun out of it, aiming it at Terry's head. Terry, having seen the gun, reacted instinctively and put his hand up in front of his head just as Derek pulled the trigger. Derek drove off, certain he had killed Terry. The officer who had been following Derek saw this entire thing and called it in over the police radio, urging for an ambulance to be dispatched immediately. He then stopped his police car next to Terry's taxi and quickly got out to administer first aid. He noticed that there was also a female passenger in Terry's taxi who was also injured. Both Terry and his passenger survived the attack. However, Terry had to have his right hand amputated as it had been too badly injured by the bullet that had hit it. When the officer had gotten out of the car to help Terry, he had called in a backup team to continue pursuing Derek Bird's taxi. This backup team was driving a police van that was deemed to be unsuitable for a high-speed pursuit. Nevertheless, the two unarmed officers followed this crazed, gun-wielding man, determined to stop him. Derek Bird noticed them and stopped his car in the road. He then got out and aimed his gun at the unarmed officers. With traffic building up behind them, they had nowhere to reverse to and nowhere to go. Derek didn't shoot at the officers. Instead, he got back in his car and drove off at high speed. The officers attempted to follow him, but Derek's vehicle was much quicker and they lost him. The officers knew he was heading south, though, and so the police put out an urgent warning, telling people in the Whitehaven, Egremont and the Seascale area to stay indoors. That just seems a bit crazy, though, doesn't it? That obviously the car they might have been in was too slow, but the police have surely a whole array of very fast cars designed for these chase moments, and he's driving Mm. a taxi. I mm, know, oh and I did think that when I researched it, and when I when I read that, but I think what it was is that they just happened to be so they were in a police van, so I, vans hey, obviously right. I think are like slower. But on mm. top of that, I just think that it's not like a heavily populated police area. You know, like nothing really happens in this area, so yeah, that's uh, true. 
it was probably just like the guy who had gotten out, the police officer, sorry, who had gotten out of the car to administer the first aid on Terry and his passenger just called in and said like anyone in this area kind of like take up pursuit. And it just so happened the van was in that area. It's just such bad luck that it just happened to be a vehicle that couldn't deal with going over like 50 miles per hour or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So the police were right with their assertion that he was heading south and Derek pulled into the village of Egremont. This was the market town where his old place of work had been at the Sellafield power plant. As he drove into Egremont, he saw a man and he wound down his window, beckoning the man over to his taxi, asking him what the time was. As the man approached the vehicle, Derek Bird shot him in the face and killed him. This man was 71-year-old Kenneth Fishburne. It's unclear if Derek knew this, but Kenneth Fishburne was a man who had recently retired from his work at Sellafield, the same place that had fired Derek. After shooting Kenneth, Derek drove away and saw a lady walking, carrying shopping. This was 57-year-old Susan Hughes, who was a full-time carer for her disabled daughter. Derek shot Susan with his shotgun and she fell to the floor, severely injured. He stopped his car and got out of it. He retrieved his hunting rifle from the passenger seat and then he aimed it at Susan, shooting her at point-blank range. Oh my god, I can't bear it. Susan died instantly and Derek simply got back in his car and drove off, leaving Susan at the side of the road. I'm actually amazed he's been able to go this long at this point, uncontained. Like It probably is what you said, that um, it was like a not very heavily policed area, but this mm. is just an insane body count he's oh. racked up when you could like consider what time this all originally kicked off. Like, I do mm-hmm. think it is probably to do with like the rural nature of the area, because like, if this had been in London, it would have been or any city really, um, you'd hope it would have been shut down a lot quicker. Like the fact he's just driving now to different villages mm. unstopped is terrifying. It is terrifying. Yeah, it is terrifying. And that's the thing. I think it is just that, you know, at the beginning, like I said, they tried, they called in armed response units, but they were all told like at the minimum, it was going to be an hour before they could get there. And they don't know where this guy is. Do you know what I mean? It's like you said, they're driving around. uh, Sorry, Derek's driving around. They've got no idea where he's going. They don't know where he is. Yeah, Um, fairly disguised as well, I suppose. Like if he's in a taxi, mm, initially at least, it would be quite hard to like pin down. Completely agree. So next, Derek drove to the village of Wilton and pulled into the driveway of the home owned by Jason Carey. Jason Carey was a member of the scuba diving club that Derek Bird had been involved with. He beeped his horn at the house to get Jason's attention, but Jason wasn't home. However, his wife Deborah was. Luckily for Deborah, by the time she'd managed to open the door, Derek had become so impatient that he'd driven away. She had an incredibly lucky escape. Mm. Unfortunately, Jennifer and James Jackson didn't have a lucky escape. They were a 67 and 68-year-old married couple walking along the street where Derek had just been waiting at the Carey household, and, presumably angry that he had not been able to kill his intended target, Derek aimed his gun at Jennifer and James and shot them both. He shot Jennifer Jackson with his shotgun once and then his rifle twice, and then shot James Jackson once. Both Mr. and Mrs. Jackson died instantly. This is just bizarre because he's aiming at like a mixture of friends Mm -hmm. or minimum acquaintances Mm -hmm. and also strangers. And like in one instance, he, I don't know, in some, well, I suppose actually his friend that he didn't shoot again, it was because he stopped moving, didn't he? So I suppose he thought he was dead. But either way, just a a ridiculous level, like, because for me, like a drive-by shooting is imprecise do you know what I mean it's almost like you don't know for sure who you did kill you're driving around shooting people you don't know who it is like 
Does that, do you yeah. know, that kind of makes sense? Whereas yeah, what's yeah, odd yeah. about this is it's like, he's actually stopping, getting out of his car to really ensure he has killed people and then also going to like specific addresses. So it's like a real mismatch of very calculated, but also very frenzied. Yeah, yeah, completely, completely. There doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to what he's doing. I totally get what you're saying. Mm. Um, we can talk about that a bit at the end, though, because the police afterwards, they obviously did their inquiries and their investigation, and they kind of felt that his killing spree happened in three different stages. So we can talk about that a bit at the end. Oh, okay, go. But yeah, no, I totally get what you're saying. Um, so after killing Mr. and Mrs. Jackson, Derek drove past 65-year-old Isaac Dixon, who was just standing talking to a local farmer, Derek got out of his car and shot and killed Isaac. He then got back into his car and drove towards another village named Gosworth. When entering the village, Derek saw 31-year-old farmer and amateur rugby league player Gary Purdom working in a field. Derek stopped his car and shot and killed Gary too. Derek then drove away and came across 23-year-old Jamie Clark, a young estate agent in the area. Jamie was driving his car on the opposite side of the road to Derek when he pulled out his gun and shot at him. Jamie crashed his car into Gosforth Road and died, although it could not be determined if Jamie had died as a result of his bullet wound or the car crash. Immediately after this, Derek rounded a corner and came to a tunnel that only allowed one car through at a time. 40-year-old Harry Berger was on the other side of the tunnel and kindly stopped and reversed to allow Derek's taxi through the tunnel first. Despite this, Derek still shot at him through his windscreen. Harry survived the shooting, but he lost two of his fingers. Driving now towards sea scale, Derek Bird shot and killed his last two victims. The first was 64-year-old Michael Pike. He was riding his bike, which Derek hit with his car. He then shot him twice. Further up the road, 66-year-old Jane Robinson was posting catalogues through people's letterboxes when she was shot at point-blank range and killed. Although Michael and Jane were the last two victims who died at the hands of Derek Bird, he continued his spree and injured many more people. At 11.33am, and yes, you heard that correctly, this entire massacre from the third victim, Darren Rucastle, at the taxi rank to now has lasted just over an hour. That's it. So a long time though, in a way, isn't it? Like, uh, like, obviously it's an incredible amount of people who've lost their lives. But also for me, I think actually an hour does sound long when something like this is going on. Like normally you sort of see those things, don't you, of like don't know shootings that have lasted six minutes and Mm. stuff like that whereas actually an hour is an insane amount of time for someone to be yielding to lethal weapons driving around Mm, no okay when you say it like that that's true when i was like researching this i don't know why it just really shocked me i just to me it just felt like he's driving to all these different locations yeah i know what you mean villages it just seems Mm. like absolutely wild that he's managed to kill this many people in so many different areas in just an hour but then yeah when you say it like that yeah i guess a lot more yeah. damage could have been done, I guess, in, in an hour. I do get what mm. you're saying. And like when you think as well, like if you are just driving around, like think where you can get to in an hour. True. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I totally agree with you. But yeah, just horrendous. I'm really surprised I've just not heard of this as well. Yeah, I I'm quite surprised. I mean I, I had heard of it, but I hadn't realised actually the depth of uh, the amount of people he killed or like this entire spree, but um mm. yeah. It's weird, it's weird that it's not kind of spoken about more, especially because it's here in England. It yeah. almost seems just so wild that such a uh, vicious crime with guns like happened here in England. Yeah, and in such a sort of sleepy part of the country. Mm, mm, completely. 
Um, so at 11.33 a.m., two armed officers spotted Derek Bird's car driving past them on the opposite side of the road and they slammed their brakes and quickly pulled a U-turn to follow him. However, tragically, this armed response vehicle was held up by roadworks and they lost sight of Derek Bird's taxi. What? Yeah, I know. Derek then continued driving and headed to Eskdale Valley. Here, he opened fire on six more random targets. Three of these individuals sustained injuries, but they all survived the vicious attack. Next, he pulled up alongside 30-year-old Taurus Samantha Christie, a schoolteacher from Kent. He looked up at Samantha and asked her if she was having a nice day before shooting her in the face. Oh, God, really? What? Mm-hmm. Can you imagine just being going about your day and, like, what, I don't know, what statistically are the chances that these people would be there at this time? Like, just, it's a real terrifyingly random wrong place, wrong time thing, isn't it? Like, it's, mm. yeah, I don't know, quite frightening. It is really frightening, especially this one. So I read an interview with Samantha Christie, this lady, this tourist from Kent, and it was just that she was just in the area for a holiday and it was just mm. like she was just out on a stroll. And yeah, I agree with you, like wrong place, wrong time. It just seems crazy. Like the the, the chances of that happening, it does. It is so, so scary. Um, but yeah, like I said, Samantha did actually survive this attack. Um, she, of course, suffered life-altering injuries being shot in the face. But later at the inquest, Samantha said that basically when she'd fallen to the floor, she'd played dead. And she said that she remembered thinking to herself, like, I'll oh, just lie still. He'll think I'm dead and won't come back and shoot me. Just lie still. And it worked and he drove away. So, you know, it, it, we've talked about it before, I think, in other cases, haven't we, where it's just like amazing that you're in that worst moment of your life and you have like the forethought to like think about things like that. Do you know what I mean? And not to yeah, just scream more like... so lucid to Despite exactly. the fact you've already been shot in the face. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely crazy. It's absolutely crazy. Um, so what happened next is quite unclear, but it seems that Derek had some sort of car accident because he abandoned his car at the side of the road shortly after shooting Samantha. Um, and when the police found his vehicle, he'd lost his front tyre. He abandoned his car in a place named Boot and an inspection of his car later showed that he'd also run out of petrol. Lee Turner, a gentleman on holiday with his wife and two toddlers, saw Derek break down and went over to ask him if he needed any help. Oh, God, no, don't, don't. No, it's fine, because thankfully for Lee, Derek had no rounds left in his shotgun, and instead he just mumbled to Lee, no, go. Oh, phew. So Derek left his shotgun in the car, but he walked away with his rifle. The police found his car and ran the plates, and at 12.40pm, they released an official statement stating that the gunman they were looking for was 52-year-old Derek Bird from Rowra, and they released his photo to the press. The area surrounding his abandoned vehicle was woodland, and the police now realised they had two options. They knew that Derek was armed, and they knew that he would kill anyone who crossed his path. Every armed officer in Cumbria and the surrounding counties had been dispatched to this location, The RAF had even been drafted in to search the woodland overhead. The officers wondered, should they stay where they were and wait for backup, or should they head into the woods blind? The officers realised that regardless of their location, they were sitting ducks, whether they walked into the woodland or not. Derek could be anywhere, he could pick them out from where they were stood right there, and so they decided to go into the woods. Their game plan from the outset was to try and negotiate with Derek and talk him down, They were determined for him to come out of this alive so that the families could get justice, with one officer remarking that a successful firearms incident was one where no shots were fired at all. The armed officers entered the woods and scoured the area. Then, 
at 1.40pm on June 2, 2010, after 12 deaths and 11 serious injuries, an officer stumbled across the body of Derek Bird. He had pulled the trigger for what investigators later stated must have been the 50th time that day, and killed himself. Good. I don't know. Not good. don't know. No, I don't know how to feel about it either. No, not good. Mm. So I think I think not good because the big, big, huge, massive question, I guess, on everyone's lips was why on earth had Derek Bird seemingly lost control and killed and injured so many people? I mean, you know, I briefly mentioned at the beginning that Derek Bird was like a really seemingly normal guy. And honestly, it does seem like he was. When the police broke his name to the media saying that he was the shooter, every single person who knew him thought that the police had got it wrong. Like, they all felt really bad for Derek. They couldn't believe the police had named him. Yeah, they literally, in so many interviews, people have just been, people have said they were so shocked and they felt awful for Derek. Like, oh my God, how how awful is this that they're naming him as as the shooter when it obviously isn't him? Like, that is how convinced people were that there is no way this guy could have done this. Bizarre. Yeah, and it is bizarre. Like one man uh, named Ryan Dempsey, um, he'd known Derek Bird since school and he told reporters that he'd seen Derek just the night before the shooting and that he'd been fine and he'd been just as happy as ever. Um, He also said that he had never seen Derek with guns before and he'd never heard him even talking about guns. Uh, Dempsey kind of did say that actually in such a rural area like the one they were living in, guns, you know, are commonplace, but he just Mm. would never have expected Derek to be... To have been like didn't that he hunt, heavily though? affiliated or with did them. I make that bit up? Yeah, no, no, he did hunt. He did hunt. That's where he got his guns from. Um, so yeah, he did hunt, and he legally owned the guns for hunting purposes. Um, mm. But this guy who had like known him for so long basically just said he he would never have suspected that if Derek was going to do something like this that he would have used a gun. Um, it was kind of that sort of so far out of his his personality, I guess you would say. So is there any more like intel that you have? So as the investigations continued and interviews and things like that were conducted, the investigators did kind of start to put together like a story of like paranoia, hatred, jealousy, that kind of thing. Um, And they felt Mm. kind of what I'd mentioned earlier, actually, about the fact that they felt Derek's killing spree had been done in three stages. Um, So stage one was to get back at the people that he believed had wronged him. And the second stage was to get back at the people from his old workplace, the Sellafield power plant. And then the third stage was just to attack anyone until basically he ran out of ammunition. But I, but do, do we know that the first people had... Oh, no, okay. So I suppose like his brother and the lawyer and stuff. Yeah. Right, okay. And that's because I... But, but like the taxi drivers and stuff, that's stage two? No, so that's still stage one. So yes, you're right in that the first two victims, um, David Bird and his solicitor, Kevin Commons, um, they were obviously people that... Mm. that Derek thought had wronged him and basically so I mentioned earlier didn't I that Derek had hired Kevin to help him with some tax evading issues he was having well it transpired that Derek had been completely paranoid about going to prison for his tax evading um and he'd spoken to his brother and said oh I need a solicitor and it was David that had had recommended that Derek hire Kevin Commons and so Kevin basically looked at all the documents and said to Derek you're fine like nothing's happening the HMRC aren't investigating you But Derek was so paranoid that he didn't believe Kevin. He believed that his brother David and his lawyer Kevin were essentially uh, conspiring with each other against Derek and plotting to steal his money. And so that is basically why he went after them because he thought they were stealing his money. I mean, in reality, it was revealed afterwards that Kevin had been totally right. The HMRC weren't looking into Derek at all. The letter that he had was like a very standard letter. Um, And then with regards to the taxi rank, 
lots of reports and stuff came out afterwards that uh, the ta- the other taxi drivers bullied Derek and um there was I think there was one report that I read where it said that Darren Rucastle had reportedly slashed Derek's tires. Darren Rucastle was the man who uh, Derek had shot the third time, the third victim. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe it was in retaliation to that. With regards to the other taxi drivers, um, they kind of took the mick out of him. They had like a lot of banter. They said that, you know, they said really childish things, basically like, oh, he had the smelliest taxi and he had really bad personal hygiene and all this kind of thing. I mean, it's childish. This behavior, though, it's not exclusive to this group of men. Do you know what I mean? Like this really bad, awful banter does happen in all lines of work. But obviously Derek... It, it sat with him a lot harder, if you know what I mean. Like, he, it really, yeah. really affected him. Mm. Um, well, so I think that's... it's important to call it out as bullying. Like, if they're repeatedly doing that, I think, like, it's one of those things that people do pass stuff off as banter. Um, well, actually, it probably was bullying. That said, obviously, this killing spree he's gone on is completely unjustified, flat mm. out. But it does, like, it 100%. It begins to paint a picture, doesn't it? Because at the start, when obviously you're thinking, like, everyone says he's quite nice, he's quite well-liked, that was when I was like, okay, I just don't understand what's happened here then. Whereas now you're starting to see, yeah, a kind of paranoid, quite delusional, um, maybe sort of quite downtrodden by those around him. Like It sort of paints a bit of a different scene, doesn't it, I suppose? Yeah, no, it definitely does. And like, I do agree with you. I do do think the acts of the taxi drivers sound like bullying. What I was trying to kind of say though was that it wasn't exclusive to him. They were all doing it Mm, to each other. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but it wasn't, they weren't picking out him. Exactly, it's exactly that. Like, it's not right. I'm not saying that at all that it's right, but it wasn't exclusive to just Derek. They were all facing it. I think the thing Mm. I have to say that's really unclear to me, is what his motive was behind shooting Terry. Um, so he was the man who end up, ended up like losing his arm because Terry and Derek were incredibly close. Like They were very, very good friends. Um, and Terry never got involved in any of the rubbish banter or anything like that because they were good friends. Um, it, amazingly, to be honest, since the attack, Terry has never blamed Derek at all for anything that happened. He constantly says that it wasn't what? Derek who shot him. Yeah, he's like, the man that shot me was in Derek's body, but he didn't have his mind. Like he's still still... Oh, right, I see, I see. Oh, sorry, yeah. Oh, yeah. I thought he was in, like, like, complete denial. No, 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 no. As in, he just, he he's that kind of, like, certain um, that it wasn't Derek's behaviour at all or whatever, or anything like that. Like, he'd had, like, a complete mental breakdown or, or whatever, whatever mm. that he thinks that happened. I mean, I don't know how I feel about this, like, stage theory thing, because before the second stage occurred, Derek actually went to visit a friend called Neil, and I probably should mention this because this is I was quite amazed by it. Um, but he went to go visit his friend Neil and um, Neil lived a few doors down from Derek. And after one of their hunting sprees, Derek had left another one of his guns at, at Neil's house and he'd knocked on the door, but Neil wasn't home. And instead his wife, Carol, was there and she'd like invited him in. She'd apologized that she couldn't get him the gun because it was locked in a cabinet and she didn't have a key for it. So she said to Derek, like, you can stay, have a cup of tea. Um, Neil's going to be home soon. He'll have the key and he can open the cabinet and get you your gun. Um, but then she sort of said, well, Derek was just in a mas- massive rush and he left shortly after that anyway. But I found this really interesting because I think this maybe does show a level of intent at this stage in terms of uh, at this point in the spree, he was only going after people who had wronged him because there is no doubt that he would have been incredibly annoyed and angry that he couldn't get that gun from Neil's house and that Carol couldn't 
you know get into the cabinet or whatever but yeah, he doesn't like, shoot carol be on the list exactly and like mm. he doesn't shoot carol and it's like at this stage he's so certain that actually no he's only going after people that, that have wronged him but i mean thank god that she didn't have a key to that because imagine how much more damage he could have done if he had another gun and kind of like more ammunition you know yeah i know that so that yeah so i guess i kind of think to my my mind's split in two on the one hand i'm kind of thinking okay we've heard like he's quite paranoid um definitely sounds like a bit delusional if we read into like the whole tax situation where someone's like an expert in their field if you will has said like look you're not at risk and he's Mm. very much sure that he is etc um and like if you kind of go down that road you start to think okay he's clearly got some you know mental quite severe mental health going on is it psychosis combined with sort of I don't know, some, like, demand hallucinations, like, people telling him to do stuff, or he's just, yeah, really, really kind of not thinking coherently at all. And in which case, you kind of think, okay, like, it's quite frenzied. Um, as as his mate Terry says, like, it was Derek, but it wasn't Derek. Mm. Like, and I know, obviously, that's not kind of how the law works, but just, yeah, as a saying um yeah and you kind of you can kind of see like how that might come about do you know what I mean like in the build-up he definitely seems to show some of the signs um that he might be suffering like a bit from psychosis or or whatever um Mm. but then like you say it's kind of weird because the first part of some of the murders feel quite calculated and quite calm that said I mean I don't think that serves to rule it out like, i think he could well have like gone to the house then not let him have the gun and kept like a clear enough head because actually in that moment whilst he might be losing touch with like reality as we see it his reality mm. to him still could have been very clear like you know you need to kill x y and z and then maybe like a point came where he lost track of that mm. or alternatively he wasn't out of touch with reality to that extent, suffering with kind of that extent of um, mental illnesses and like psychosis and hallucinations and stuff. Um, But instead was more, I don't know, felt very like let down by society, just felt miserable, possibly suicidal, kind of felt like his Mm. wife had left him, his kids had left him, people were after his money, you know, the his friends in sort of averted commas were mean to him etc and maybe mm. he sort of felt like I, I mean you hear about this again don't you people who've been treated quite cruelly by the world whether they have or that's just how they perceive it you know maybe he kind of thought right well this is it I've had enough like no one cares about me life isn't getting better so I am gonna go out and I'm gonna seek revenge for all the people that have wronged me mm. and then who knows maybe he actually was like fuck I feel really in control for once the power's going to my head you know no one can stop me I've killed three people that I've planned to kill no one's stopping me I'm just gonna keep going um and at this point starts to kind of I don't know adrenaline it sounds like a very blase word for it but if he was just driving around on the spree kind of unstopped then perhaps the adrenaline did start surging and at which point you start to see like the phases as the police said of Mm. like slightly more frenzied sporadic random killings to the point where runs out of petrol hits his car whatever bit of a crash back to reality if it was like the psychosis or if he was just feeling very the world was against him actually it's quite common that spree killers do end the killing spree with killing themselves isn't it Mm -hmm. and i think that's because a lot of the time they always 
I always, in my opinion, this isn't a fact, I kind of always wonder that actually that was always their intention. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like they never think they're going to go on a spree and get away with it. Actually, Mm -hmm. what they want to do is leave the world that's let them down so badly. But before they do that, if if you know you're going to kill yourself, why not kill all those people? So Mm -hmm. I guess that's kind of where my head's at. Like on the one hand, Mm. a real just, yeah, a real kind of breakdown in in mental health. Mm. Um, Well, I suppose you could argue both of them are. But do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, one hand kind of much more psychosis and on the other hand, a real just fuck you to the world in mm. a, a horrible and cruel way. I'm not defending his actions at all. I think it's awful, awful how many people lost their lives or had almost, yeah, life-changing injuries. Mm. But I think, I don't know, I kind of feel like there's a case for both here. Do I think, think that, do you know what? I think what you what you said um about the fact that probably during this he started to f- suddenly feel in control again i think that is so interesting and it's not something i'd thought about but when you said that i was just like yes i actually totally think that's right um because you know I've, there's so much information about him out there i mean i haven't gone into all of it but i mean like a- as an example um at the court case and the inquiry that kind of followed this killing spree um it was kind of revealed that uh, in 2007, he'd been knocked unconscious by a passenger and they'd like broken his front two teeth. And then his friends testified um, at the um, inquiry and at the court case that this 2007 assault on him had left him nervous. It had left him anxious. It had left him feeling out of control. And he was very nervous of his like other passengers and things mm. like that. It kind of added to his paranoia. Um, And then also on top of that, Terry also spoke out in several interviews and said that for some time Derek had been quite worried because his mother was ill and nearing the end of her life. And he said that, you know, this led Derek to abuse alcohol and that when he drank, he would cry about his mother, but that he'd also confided in Terry that he was, yes, sad that his mother was going to pass away. But he was also sad because he thought that his mum had changed her will. And he thought that she'd changed her will to split her estate 50-50 between Derek and David, but that Derek felt that he was entitled to all of it because, in his opinion, David was already much more wealthy than him. And, I mean, there's no evidence I can find that supports that this is what his mum had done. I mean, she also had another son, you know, Derek and David had an older brother, so I can't imagine that in any event she would have left her whole estate to Derek. But this was just kind of like another thing swirling around his head, making him angry. Um... And, you know, like you said as well, that the marriage breakdown, getting suspended from work, all of this, these were all things that added to his paranoia, his uh, yeah, hatred for the world, his hatred for those people around him, anyone who was successful. Um, and adding to that, actually, regarding his marriage breakdown, I read somewhere that he frequented Thailand quite a bit and he paid for sex workers out there and that he'd fallen in love with a Thai sex worker and he'd offered to bring her over to the UK, but that she'd rejected him. And supposedly he took this like really hard and he felt that if he'd been rich in his mind, if he'd been rich like his brother David, um, then she would have come to England with him. So I do think that it does sound to me like there's a really valid argument in the fact that yes, he started doing this and all of a sudden he was in control. Nobody could catch him. Nobody could stop him. He was invincible. And for the first time ever, I totally agree with you. He had total control over what was happening in his life. And I also agree that I do think that he um, was always going to kill himself afterwards. And that actually, I wanted to raise this with you. So I'm quite glad that you said that because one of his friends from the taxi rank later told the police that a few days before the massacre, Derek had calmly told him something like, 
you won't see me eat around here again. I'm going to kill myself. But first, I'm going to make Whitehaven more famous than Dunblane. Uh, Dunblane, of course, being the massacre that occurred at a primary school in Dunblane, Scotland, where the shooter killed 18 people and injured like countless others in 1996. And I read that statement and I think it, I think it's a lie. I think to me, it sounds like a very dramatic thing that someone says after the event. I, in my opinion, I think there was certainly a degree of planning to Derek's killing spree, but I don't think the motive behind it was to make him famous or make Whitehaven famous or anything like that. No. I think it was to right the wrongs, you know, like we've been saying, it was to right the wrongs that he felt he was facing. I just can't see him saying anything almost like that dramatic, you know, like that punchy, that kind of headliney, if you know what I mean. Yeah, 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 no, I agree. I agree. I think for him, I don't know, you can't know, like you say, he he was dead it leaves a lot of questions unanswered but mm-hmm. it's not the initial impression you get i don't think when you hear the background of this case is it that he was a man who and i mean who knows maybe he did want to end with a you know instead of his kind of ordinary life where he lived basically kind of in fear of the world maybe he did want to end as an infamous murderer but my gut instinct mm. would be probably no that actually yeah he just wanted to make the world feel like there was a bit more justice in it for him um mm-hmm. and then yeah just got sucked into this suddenly feeling all powerful which you know he must have in that moment you there's Mm -hmm. nothing there is no more power really is there than taking away all of these people's lives and stuff completely Mm -hmm. unstopped and I mean for large parts of it there wasn't even a police in pursuit of him no no exactly and when and when the police were in pursuit all he had to do was raise a gun to them and they stopped or do you know I mean they couldn't catch up with him so yeah I totally agree yeah do you want to know another interesting angle? Yeah. This is really left field, but... Um, mm-hmm. So you said that he slept with a lot of sex workers. Mm. So syphilis uh, can actually, in very late stages, affect you neurologically and can cause uh, psychosis, delirium, depression in what? a very late stage. Yeah. So Really? Mm. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Sal, that is very interesting. I had no idea about that. Maybe it, it was that then. Yeah, well, I doubt anyone did any kind of autopsy on him. Who knows, maybe they did. But um, yeah, so people that are, well, obviously not sexually promiscuous, it's a silly thing to say, but obviously your chances are increased by having a lot of sexual partners uh, Mm -hmm. or sleeping with uh, sex workers who are just, Mm -hmm. again, a more at-risk group. And Mm -hmm. yeah, that can go on to uh, cause some quite serious neurological and psychiatric symptoms. That's actually very interesting. Well done. You've earned your you've earned your keep today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. I think that's basically all I've got. I think actually what I will say is the thing that I find so striking about this case is just how wrong Derek was about everything in his life. You know, I said that he was obsessed with how much money David had and like David yeah. being really wealthy. Well, actually like it was found out afterwards that Derek had more money than David did. Um Yeah, I mean and... the man's got sixty thousand pounds in cash. I know. I know. It's I know. It's just so odd, isn't it? He. It's almost like he he got his head so, not like wrapped up, but he obviously he just fixated on these things that he thought were really important and that he thought was happening, and they just weren't. I mean, it's like so difficult. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things is this has been a really ghastly case because just listening to how many people he hurt is and killed is just awful. But actually, I think it does kind of highlight the fact that. We can listen to this case and think, uh, you know, God, he he was so out of touch and insane. But actually, like, a person's reality to them is their reality. Mm-hmm. And actually, for him, 
we don't know all of these things might have been true and even if he didn't necessarily believe all of them in any case he was a man who was in some a desperate need of some kind of intervention Mm -hmm. and support and obviously you can't give people support unless they you're you're aware of it do you know what I mean Mm -hmm. like unless he comes to like any kind of service provider's attention then no one is able to do anything particularly about it but actually you can't help but wonder when you listen to a case like this that had he had some kind of therapy some kind of treatment some something you know Mm. a year in advance you you have to wonder don't you like whether this would have ended the same way or or actually whether was there some medication was there some therapy was there something that could have helped him just change the way he saw the world be Mm. that yeah you know medication for something quite serious or just be it a a talking therapy to try Mm -hmm. and say look I know this is how you perceive things but actually like you're wrong you're not being hard done by here people aren't talking about you etc I mean like I just feel like actually there probably was some kind of intervention here that could have changed the course of this yeah I definitely agree I definitely agree and I think that's what's so sad about it is Mm. he obviously didn't speak to anyone about what was going on and the people he did speak to Uh, obviously he didn't get the answers that he wanted from them but I do agree with you I think some kind of therapy like a different outlet maybe just for the emotions that were swirling around his head rather than it all kind of building up and then ending in the way that it did yeah it's incredibly sad it is incredibly sad um for for probably you know for Derek's family um and also for the victims of this case all of those I mean how many you hate to think how many people are impacted by this case really don't you like so many family impacts from victims so many people Mm -hmm. who probably witnessed something awful that day just yeah Mm. ghastly and just to be so truly random as well yeah 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 no I totally agree yeah it kind of I watched an interview with David Bird's daughters and wife and the his daughters in in the interview said no one ever thinks about us like we lost our dad but also we lost our uncle and it was our uncle who did this to people and I thought oh god that's so true isn't it like yeah yeah and for them as well actually to be so hard wouldn't it because like your family's like the center of a media Mm. limelight and on the one hand yeah because a victim and on the other hand because yeah your uncle was the murderer yeah yeah no it's awful it is awful well there you go that is the case of Derek Bird God, I'm gonna go yeah, look into that. Hmm. Yeah, if you check the description box on the podcast, Sally, you'll have all the links. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, so thank you guys so so much for listening as always we're on social media at infraction.thepod and as Sally mentioned earlier we're over on Patreon where we're actually this month going to start our new segment so if you guys follow us on social media you would have seen that we asked uh, what you wanted and um, the overall response was that you guys love the weekly wind downs but you'd also like a news episode too so starting this month we're releasing a minimum of two weekly wind downs a month and then a third wind down with the news episode where we'll both pick stories um that have been prominent in the news but that maybe don't have enough information for a whole episode on and we'll bring some to the table um so you know we'll each do that you'll have the pleasure of hearing more from sally um as well as myself and then we'll share the stories with each other and discuss them oh my god and all of that for just three pounds a month nadia (laughs) yes sally a bargain (laughs) that is a bloody good bargain i will sign up now So, um, yeah, thank you so much, guys. You can find us over on Patreon. Um, Three pounds a month. (laughs) um, We will see you guys on Patreon now or uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. See you soon. Bye. Happy New Year. Oh, yeah, Happy New Year. (laughs) Bye. (laughs)